Once a year I speak from a manuscript, and that's on the 4th of July, because what I want to say, I want to say very deliberately and uh, precisely. I've come today with you to celebrate America's 216th birthday and to recall with you America's godly heritage. No one can understand America without a comprehension of her Christian heritage. You can't learn the history of this land apart from it. Now we don't hear much these days in the halls of government and education about our Christian heritage as a nation. In fact, we're told that our founding fathers were agnostics, atheists, and deists. I'd like to set the record straight about that today. The fact is that 52 of the 55 people who worked on the Constitution were evangelical Christians. You are familiar, of course, with the famous words of Patrick Henry, give me liberty or give me death. You may not have read that Patrick Henry also said, it cannot be emphasized too strongly or too often that this great nation was founded not by religionists, but by Christians. Not on religion, but on the gospel of Jesus Christ. That's a strong statement that used to appear in every school textbook. John Quincy Adams, one of the chief architects of this country and our form of government, was appointed at the age of 14 as a diplomat to the court of Catherine the Great of Russia, the age of 14. And Adams made this statement, quote, The highest glory of the American Revolution was this, that it connected in an indissoluble bond the powers of civil government with the principles of Christianity. He said that the biggest victory we won in the American Revolution was that we bound civil government with Christian principles. John Jay, who was the first Supreme Court Justice, once said, quote, Providence has given to our people the choice of their values, and it is the duty as well as the privilege of a Christian nation to select and prefer Christians for their rulers. How long has it been since you've heard someone on the Supreme Court say, be sure to elect a Christian in this political election? That's your duty as a Christian in a Christian nation. Was our nation founded on Christian principles? Consider a statement made by George Washington in his famous farewell address. This appeared in every student's school book was considered the most famous and significant address ever made to this nation. That's no surprise. He was the father of our country. He gave 45 years to public service. He led the troops in the battle for independence. And in his farewell address, he said, quote, Do not let anyone claim to be a true American, claim to be an American patriot, if he ever attempts to remove religion from politics. Our founding fathers delivered to us a form of government that was totally unique. It's lasted over 200 years. The same document has set firm this form of government, totally unique from all other nations. France, for example, has seen seven completely different forms of government, and Italy is working on its 49th. America was built on the Constitution and it has remained the same for over 200 years. Now why was it, or is it, so unique? A group of political scientists at the University of Houston decided 
that they would compile all the writings of the founding fathers to determine who was quoted most often. They gathered 15,000 writings of the founding fathers. They narrowed that group down to 3,154 that they felt most significant. It took them 10 years to complete the project. The result, they had all the quotes of the fathers, who they were, where they came from, etc. And they found that three men were the most quoted, Blackstone, Montesquieu, and John Locke. These three men were the most often quoted, but they found that the Bible was quoted 16 times more than these men. 34% of the quotes of the founding fathers were quotes from the Bible, and another 60% were quotes of men who used the Bible to arrive at their conclusions. Therefore, 94% of what the founding fathers used in the establishment of this nation was from the Bible. The Constitution established three branches of government and at the same time provided constitutional guarantees of the separations of powers within those three branches. Where did they get the idea of the three branches of government? They got it from Isaiah 32:22, quote, For the Lord is our judge, the Lord is our lawgiver, the Lord is our king. Where did they get the idea of the separation of powers? From Jeremiah 17. Ideas so unique causing America to last so long under our government. And where do you think they got the idea of tax exemption from our, from church for churches? From Ezra 7.24. We also inform you that it is not allowed to impose tax, tribute, or toll on any of the priests, Levites, singers, doorkeepers, or servants of the house of God. End quote. It is amazing how many times Congressmen and senators came to the floor of the House and Senate and said, Look what I found in the Bible. And they would discuss it, discuss it on the floor of the House and Senate, debate it, and put it into government with a statement like this. Well, it's in the Bible, and that's what we want in our government. In 1892, the participation of religion in government was challenged before the Supreme Court. In the case of the Church of the Holy Trinity versus the United States, the following ruling was handed down, quote, Our laws and our institutions must necessarily be based upon and embody the teachings of the Redeemer of mankind. It is impossible that it should be otherwise. And in this sense and to this extent, our civilization and our institutions are emphatically Christian, end quote. Now, how did the court come to this conclusion? They cited 87 precedents and said, we can give you more if you like. Now, a precedent is something done or said that should be used as an example. The court said, we can, we can cite at least 87 examples of previous decisions of the court to come to the conclusion that our laws and institutions must necessarily be based and embody the teachings of the Redeemer of mankind. One of the most remarkable cases before the Supreme Court was the case of the People versus Ruggles in 1811. The ruling of the court was this, quote, Whatever strikes at the root of Christianity tends manifestly to the dissolution of civil government. Now this man had gone on a tirade 
and, and had uttered profanity and written this profanity out. He said such things as Jesus Christ is. He, he, he put an example of profanity. The Bible is pro, examples of profanity. And the court called that blasphemy and ruled that if you attack Christianity, you attack the foundation of the United States. They gave him three months in jail and a $500 fine for attacking the United States by going after Jesus. So much has been said in recent years about the separation of church and state, most often by those who fear the danger of church infringement upon the government. Folks think that separation of church and state is a First Amendment guarantee. But actually, the First Amendment does not contain the phrase separation of church and state. Where did that phrase come from? What the Constitution sought to guarantee was the, was the, was the prevention of the infringement upon, of, the, of the government upon the church. And what they sought to prevent was that there would be one denomination in America that was superior to all other denominations. They, the Constitution sought to prevent what they had in England. So in, 19, in 1801, a group of Baptists in Danbury, Maryland, heard a rumor that the congregation denomination would become the one denomination in America. So they petitioned the court on January 1st, 1802. And Jefferson, commenting on the case, said, There would not be one denomination over the others in America. He said, quote, The Constitution has erected a wall of separation between church and state. And he made it clear that God and Christian principles are to remain in the government, but that the government was not to infringe upon the activity of the church. The idea of separation was that the government was not to run the church rather than vice versa. In 1853, a group came to Congress and petitioned for separation of church from state. We want separation of church and state, they said. Their request was sent to the House and Senate Judiciary Committee. They were to investigate it for one year. Is it possible to separate church from state? That's the question. And on March the 27th, 1854, they made this report. They said, quote, Had the people during the revolution had any suspicion of any attempt to war against Christianity, the revolution would have been strangled in the cradle. They said, The thing that holds our system together is the belief of our people in the pure doctrine of divine truth and the gospel of Jesus Christ. And this decision continued in the 1860s to the 1890s and it was challenged again and the court came back and they pulled Jefferson's speech and they gave it in, gave it in its entirety. They concluded that Jefferson did not say there was a wall of separation between church and state to protect the church from the government or from the government from the church, but that the wall of separation was to protect the church from the government. Jefferson said Christian principles were not to be separated from the activity of civil government. This understanding of separation continued until 1947. And in the case of Jefferson versus the Board of Education, they used eight words of Jefferson's speech 
and rule that a wall existed between church and state to prevent, to, to uh, protect the government from the church. And for the first time, the meaning of, this, of the previous decisions were reversed so that it's no longer that the church would be protected from the government. The government was protected from the church. In 1962, in the case of Ingalls versus Vitale, the first time in America the court ruled the separation of religious principle from public life, education, and government, and the Bible was removed and school prayer. Now, you remember that 1892 law that used 87 legal precedents in the ruling that our laws and our institutions must necessarily be based upon and embody the teachings of the Redeemer of mankind? 87 precedents in that conclusion? Well, this case of Ingalls versus Vitale was the first case of zero precedents in history. The first case of zero legal cases prior, zero historical incidents. It's a brand new deal. So that within 12 months, there were two more cases removing Bible reading and religious instruction. And in 1963, when Bible reading was removed from public schools, 94% of the founding fathers quoting from the Bible, but the Bible is removed from schools. Now how did they justify such a ruling? The court's explanation was, listen to this, quote, if portions of the New Testament were read without explanation, they could and had been psychologically damaging to the child. The Bible has come out of schools, they said. It might be psychologically damaging to the child. And the whole controversy began with a little 22-word prayer which led to the Ingalls Vitale case. The prayer was, quote, Almighty God, we acknowledge our dependence upon Thee, and we beg Thy blessing upon our parents, upon us, our teachers, and our country. That prayer acknowledged God, but not Jesus Christ. It was so bland that even the Supreme Court called it a to whom it may concern prayer. And it led to the decision that Christian principles in the schools was unconstitutional. It mentioned God one time, and the writers of the Declaration of Independence mentioned Him four times. In 1963, only 3% of the nation professed no belief in Christianity, no belief in God, 3%. That prayer was consistent with 97% of the people of America. That prayer mentioned four areas, students, families, schools, and nations. How have these areas been affected since the court ruling in 1963? Students, families, schools, and nations. For example, how has it affected the nation, the, the family, that we have said God is no longer invited into public life, into education, into schools? Well, in 1941, the, the court ruled on the matter of divorce. That would be 22 years before this decision. The court said oh, there are only six reasons to grant a divorce. They said we didn't establish the family. God did. Therefore, we don't have the right to regulate something He did. Now, the Supreme Court is saying this. 
And the court went on to give a Bible lesson about the family using Adam and Eve and Noah's family as examples. The conclusion was, since God established the family, we must use His rules regarding it. What happened to the family? What has happened to the family since 1963? Now, if you take 1963 and you work backward 15 years, 15 years prior to 1963, divorce declined every year. After 1963 to 1983, divorce has tripled every year. Single-parent families have increased 140%. Unmarried couples living together have increased 353%. Teenage pregnancies are up 553% in America. How about students since 1963? The SAT scores continue to decline to the point where scores are so low that the Department of Education recently said that for the first time in history, graduating students academically know less than their parents. What about the nation? In the case of Stone versus Graham of Kentucky, this case had to do with a copy of the Ten Commandments that were posted on the walls of a church room, of a a school room. They were not read. They were not encouraged to be read. But somebody took that to the Supreme Court, the fact that they had those Ten Commandments on there. And the court ruled this. If posted copies of the Ten Commandments are to have any effect at all, It will induce the students to read them, meditate upon them, obey them. This is not a permissible objective. That is, you can't display the Ten Commandments. Somebody might obey them. If James Madison would have had heard that, he would have turned over in his grave. He's one of the chief architects of the Constitution, and he said, quote, We have staked the whole future of American civilization, not on the power of government, far from it. We have staked the future of all our political institutions upon the capacity of each and all of us to govern ourselves according to the Ten Commandments of God. What about the nation? Tell God He's no longer wanted in government and education. Does it matter? Since 1963, violent crime has increased in this country 544%. A recent report of the Journal of American Medical Association said, quote, crime is a medical emergency in this country. A burglary is committed every 10 seconds. A violent crime is committed every 33 seconds in America. Forcible rape every 10 minutes and murder is committed every 26 minutes. How far has America slid? Once we were world leaders, we still are. We're number one in the world in violent crime. We're number one in the world in divorce. We're number one in the world in teen pregnancies. We're number one in the world in abortion. We're number one in the world in illegal drug use. We're number one in the Western world in illiteracy, believe it or not. Three years ago, the White House issued a statement that 700,000 students graduating from high school were unable to read their own diplomas. What can be done? Well, to to, to pen or to 
verbalize a cliche, we might say we need to take back this country before it's too late. We must avoid so isolating ourselves from the political arena that we fail to have any influence on what happens to our country. Let your citizenship be worthy of the gospel of Jesus Christ, Paul said. The only kind of citizenship that will glorify Christ is that which, after having acknowledged our problems, actively seeks to do something about them. Every Christian would say amen to the call of repentance from moral depravity in our nation. But what we need to realize is that apathy and non-involvement are sins also. He who knows to do right and does not do it, to him it is sin. One of the greatest sins of our day is a lack of involvement in the political affairs of our nation. With what agility we try to escape from our responsibility. Politics are dirty, we say. Then we ought to get in and clean them up. The government is going to pot, we say. Then we ought to get involved and put it right. The voters are stupid, we say. Then we ought to inform them. The powers of evil have control of our nation, we say. Then we ought to band together as children of the King and infiltrate the domain of evil with the life-giving, light-emitting power of God. They don't care anymore, we say. Don't ever say they when you talk about America. We are America. If anything is to be done about the problems of our nation, then we're going to have to do it. And we as God's children ought to be leading the way. We are to be light of the world and the salt of the earth. And the only way we can do that is to penetrate the social framework of the nation, to infiltrate the political framework of our world with our saving influence. In 1776, when the 13 states began to set their state constitutions, they included a statement like the Delaware Constitution. Most every one of them had this in their state constitution. Now listen to this amazing statement. Everyone appointed to public office must say, I do profess faith in God, the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, His Holy Son and the Holy Ghost, one God and blessed forever. And I do acknowledge the Holy Scripture of the Old and New Testaments to be given by divine inspiration. That was a requirement of every politician. The reason given for such a requirement was the belief in future rewards and punishments. The belief that when a man left office, he would answer to God for what he did in office. There was a deep personal belief that God punishes national sin by national calamity. No wonder Ben Franklin, in one of the most powerful speeches ever made while speaking to the Constitutional Convention, insisted that we need God as friend and ally and not as adversary. He said, quote, If a sparrow does not fall to the ground without God's awareness, how can we expect the nation to rise without His aid? And He called for regular daily prayer to keep God alongside what we're doing. And Jefferson said, it's on his monument in Washington, D.C. 
I indeed tremble for my country when I reflect that God is just and that His justice cannot sleep forever. Ben Franklin summed up what needs to happen in America. In 1774, while ambassador to France, Franklin was recommending to the French how to have the best government. And he said, quote, Whoever shall introduce into the public affairs the principles of Christianity will change the face of the world. I need to say that again. Whoever shall introduce into the affairs the principles, into public affairs, the principles of Christianity will change the face of the world. The greatest service we could render would be to remind America that there is a capital city greater than Washington, a leader more powerful than the president, a citizenship more valuable than American citizenship, a land more cherished than the land of the free and home of the brave. And we need to make it very clear that the connection with that city and relation with that leader and possession of that land comes not in the stars and stripes of old glory, but in the blood-bought flag of righteousness given to all believers through Jesus Christ our Lord. Abraham Lincoln was right. The question is not whether God is on our side. The important question is whether we're on God's side. That is true of us as a nation. And that is true of us as an individual. There is no hope for our nation, no possibility for the fulfillment of our dreams, no opportunity for the completion of our task if we're not. Amen and amen. Join me in prayer. Our Father, on this day that we reflect, as we reflect upon what has been ours, we're more than ever reminded of how blessed we are and how conscious we are this morning of somewhere along the way we as individuals and as nations have neglected the most important things and we've allowed the slippage to come that's caused the great crisis and emergencies that exist in this country. And we pray for a national repentance. We pray, God, that our people, our nation, would turn to you. And that in the halls of justice, in the halls of government, the halls of public education, there might be a refreshing, a reawareness of the God who created us, gave us life and liberty. And that we stand under His judgment when we reject Him, turn our back upon Him. And I pray, God, for a moment of decision in this place this morning that would that would change the face of a nation 
a decision to do our part to put Christian principles into life where we are in our sphere of living. For I ask in Jesus' name and for His sake. Now I know it's difficult to have an invitation after a patriotic service. I feel there's a need this morning to invite you to receive Christ as your personal Savior if you've not yet done that. The greatest sin that one could ever commit is to leave, is to reject Christ. Give Him first place in your life. Perhaps you need to come today to unite to, with a church, to commit your life to, Christian, to the Christian walk in the family, where you work, where you're involved. We'll just sing two stanzas of this invitation. We invite you to come on the first one as we stand to sing.